Amen. Morning, friends. You guys having a good summer? Yeah. I, you know, this is just extra, but I uh, I'm having a great summer this year. Um, not that you know you really cared that much, but it, it's really we. Ha- Do you understand how great of a state we live in for the summer? It is just amazing. Last week, my wife and I went off camping into the woods uh, to this place called Little Crater Lake. Some of you may have been there. It's just this beautiful little like artesian spring that kind of glows with like emerald blue colors, and I'm thinking. Wow, this is like an hour and a half from my house. How did this happen? And Amy was saying to me, you know, there's just something so refreshing about being outside. And it's because we were created by God to be outside. That's part of his original plan. And so she was saying, like, we're like living into like kingdom restoration this very week just by camping. And I was trying to remind her there's some other things happening in Genesis 1 um, in terms of clothing options. And she said that was inappropriate for camping. So we had to just go with the outside thing. But, um, but it was, you know, we just... We live in such a great place, um, and summertime is such a wonderful time to enjoy uh, the beauty of our state. God has put out his blessing on our state above all other states. Um, I'm convinced of that. So uh, that's on my to-do list for the summer. Also on my to-do list for the summer are a number of household projects. If you're like me, the summertime becomes this season where all the honeydew lists outside chores kind of get kind of elevated to the top and on my list this summer top of the list was to replace the entire fence on the side of our house so ever since we moved in almost like instantly after we moved in the fence on the side of our house has been like falling down the the center post that held up the gate and broke off like rotted away right at the at the base right at the you know right at the bottom and so the whole gate is held up by our house and it sort of flops back and forth making it really tough to navigate and so since that's the only way into and out of our backyard um the kids have to go through the house because they can't work the gate in this kind of a uh, you know a situation and so my wife has been telling me please 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 fix the gate it has to happen and so i did it i got it accomplished just inside of 2 years of when she first asking you know which i think is sort of like the statute of limitations um but this summer she said it has to happen and so i went out and i did what any loving husband and like tough rugged handyman would do i hired Pastor Ron's son, Drew Carlson, to come and help me with the gate project. I was still a part of the project. I was there. I just had some professional assistance. And, um, and we worked on this gate. And I had to tell you, uh, Drew just did an amazing job. It was tons of fun working with him. Uh, you can see uh, my, there they are. My, that's my brand new gate and fence. Doesn't it look good? And this is something my wife knows about me. And now you guys are getting to experience it. Anytime I accomplish anything handy, even with paid help, right? Uh, I will brag about it for like the next year. And so anytime Amy sort of mentions like stuff that needs to be done around the house, I'll be saying, well, remember the gates? I did the gates. And she's like, that was like 18 months ago, hon. I'm like, well, yeah, but they were really good. Let's look at them again, right? Um, and so I'm just trying to get a lot of mileage out of these gates. But the most difficult part of this gate project was that the original post, the original gate post that was sort of rotted out was set down into the soil with some concrete about three and a half feet. 
And I guess the people who built this gate originally, before it rotted away, um, decided that it needed to be like Fort Knox or something because there's just this huge chunk of cement down in the earth. And we needed to put the new gate pole in the same place that the old gate pole was. We had to get this giant chunk of cement out of the ground. So we're digging around, digging around, digging around all around this thing, trying to pull on it, yank it. No, not even budging it. And I'm thinking, this is going to take all day just getting this thing out of here. Until all of a sudden, Drew pulls out this bad boy, his pry bar. And some of you have used one of these things before. They're, they're really heavy. I know they look light because I'm so strong. But, <laughs> but, but, they're, really, but they're really heavy. And how, how it works is, and, and again, some of you are like, this is basic stuff for construction. I, I never do any of this stuff. So yeah, how it works is you cram this pry bar down like right alongside the giant cement chunk in the ground. You get it kind of wedged under there. And then you use the leverage of the pry bar to pry the giant chunk of cement out. And so we were able to do with this pry bar, with the use of leverage, what we could never accomplish on our own, on our own strength. Now, why am I telling you this story? A, because I'm really proud of my gates. Take a look at them again. (laughs) That's some serious handyman work. That's one lucky wife who has a husband who would do that. Secondly, and more importantly, um, I'm telling you this story because, because Jesus, in our passage today from Luke 18, is going to talk to us about leverage. He's going to tell us actually a story about about righteousness, about having, finding, achieving right status before God. And what we know about righteousness is this. It is, it is not something that comes easily for us. It's not something that comes naturally for fallen, sinful, separated from God human beings. And so when people seek after righteousness, when they seek to have right standing before God, when they seek to be accepted by Him, they have to leverage Something. Something has to be leveraged. Something has to be used that will help us pry up and remove the burden of separation that we feel from God. And the question that Jesus is going to ask you and me to consider this morning is this. What are we leveraging? What are we leaning on, trusting in, to achieve the righteousness before God that every single one of our souls desires? That's our story today, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, to some who were leveraging the wrong things to achieve righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, first of all, to to fully understand and receive what Jesus is offering us in this story, we have to understand the characters, and there are two of them. There's a Pharisee, and there's a tax collector. First, the Pharisee. As New Testament Christians, we have all been conditioned to think of Pharisees as bad guys. Like, we know that. Jesus is constantly having run-ins with the Pharisees. He's constantly like rebuking them, correcting them, having like showdowns with them. The Pharisees are not good people. The Pharisees are like the Ivan Drago to Jesus's, you know, Rocky Balboa. We know they aren't good. They're bad dudes. But that is actually not what Jesus listeners would have thought about the Pharisees. See, if you were listening to Jesus, if you were part of his original audience and he mentioned the Pharisees, you wouldn't have thought bad guy, you'd have thought good guy. You see, the Pharisees were part of this 
religious movement that said, we are no longer going to settle for religious corruption and apathy. We're not going to sort of sell our, sell our souls to the devil. We're not going to collaborate with the Romans for personal gain and set aside all of our convictions and beliefs. The Pharisees are the group that said, enough is enough. We're going to follow God no matter what. We're going to be devout and we're going to live by the scriptures and we are going to be faithful to follow the king even when it's hard. So to put it in contemporary terms, Pharisees were the most faithful, committed, sold out to God people of anyone you knew. When someone moved in next door, you hoped it was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were beloved. Now, in sharp contrast to the Pharisees, there were the tax collectors. And in Jesus' day, tax collectors were absolutely loathed. If Pharisees were loved, if they were at the top of the scale of people that you looked up to and admired and liked and adored, tax collectors were at the complete opposite end. And here's why. When the Romans moved in and conquered a nation or a people group, one of the very first things they did was to like levy... Uh, exorbitant taxes on that people group. And what they would do is they would seek to sort of rip out every single ounce of wealth from that nation, from that people group, and they would ship it all back to Rome. And so the way they did this was they would use insiders. They would recruit people from inside the conquered people group, people who knew the customs, people who knew the practices, people who knew the general incomes of the other people living around them, and they would use those folks to collect the taxes. It was their way of sort of ensuring they could get the most money out of their conquered people as they possibly could. If I use one of you to get the money from you, I'll get more money from you than I would if we tried to collect it on our own because you know where the money is. And furthermore, the Romans would say this. They'd say, all right, Mr. Tax Collector, here's your territory, right? Um, This is the group of people that you're in charge of collecting taxes from. We expect you to give us this certain amount of money every month, but anything you collect over and above that amount, that's yours to keep. And furthermore, we're going to sort of give you the authority and the power of the entire Roman army behind you. So whatever you tell people to pay you, they're going to have to pay or they're going to answer to us. They're going to answer to our swords and our spears. And so to be a tax collector was to be loathed, but it was also to be a person with tremendous power. It was also to be a person with the potential of attaining amazing amounts of wealth. And the more wealthy you got, the more your people hated you. Imagine this. Imagine a Jewish person getting rich by working for the Nazis during World War II. Imagine how the Jews would have felt about that person. And now you have just an idea of how first century Israelites felt about tax collectors. So here we have it. The table is set. We have this Pharisee. We have this tax collector. And now Jesus is going to use these two characters to teach us something. It's like he's, he's announcing to the crowd... In this corner, weighing in at 187 pounds, the epitome of godliness and all that is good, the Pharisee. And the crowd's like, yeah, the Pharisee. We love the Pharisee. Yeah, well, yeah. And he says, and in this corner, cheating on his way in and kicking women and children on his way into the ring, all that is evil and wrong with the world, the guy who just robbed your grandmother, the tax collector. And you can feel the crowd like, boo, and they're throwing things. Why am I making such a big deal about this? Here's why. 
Friends, you will not get this story if you do not understand these characters and how if you were one of Jesus' listeners, your heart, your emotion, everything in you would have overwhelmingly cheered for and associated with the Pharisee. If you were one of Jesus' listeners, you would have been thinking, I'm a Pharisee person. I'm going for the Pharisee in this story. That's important for you to know. Why? Because in the end, Jesus does what he often does. He pulls the old switcheroo on us and the person you fully expect to be righteous isn't. And the person you never expect to be righteous is. Why? Why does Jesus tell the story this way? Why does he set us up? Why does he set us up to like the person who's actually going to be the villain? Friends, let me suggest to you that Jesus does this because he understands something about us, something about self-righteousness, something about superiority that he wants us to understand, and that's this. It's sneaky. It's, it's cloaked. It is extremely subtle, and it is very hard to spot, especially in ourselves. People have amazing ability to not see their own self-righteousness, to not see superiority in themselves. And so Jesus wants to fool us into understanding this. Maybe, just maybe, this Pharisee has more to teach us about ourselves than we ever thought he did. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about this week is how do we react? How do we as... 21st century American Christians react when we read this story. And do you know how I think most of us react? Do you know what I think most of us think when we read this story? We read this story about this Pharisee who thinks he's better than everyone and stands up in the temple, we're going to read it in a minute, and says, God, thank you that I'm, not a, that I'm better than all these other people. Thank you that you didn't make me like, as bad as those folks. And you know what we tend to think when we read this story? God, I thank you that I'm not like this Pharisee with his arrogant attitude and his messed up theology. God, thank you that I may not be as humble and gracious and kind as I should be, but at least I'm not as bad as him. Do you see how subtle? Even in the midst of a teaching about not being superior, we can find a way to be superior. Thank you, God, that I'm superior to that guy who thought he was superior to everyone else. Jesus tells this story because he wants us to understand the propensity of our soul to fall into this trap. So let's put ourselves in the place of Jesus' listeners and take a look at what both of these characters have to teach us about what we leverage for our status of being right before God. Here's the prayer of the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This is what this Pharisee uh, uh, is doing. He's leveraging something for righteousness. He's leaning on some things in his life that he's counting on to make him right before God, to produce righteousness, to make him more righteous than the other people around him. What is he leaning on? He's leaning on his behavior. He's leaning on the things he does and the things he doesn't do. This is a guy who says, I am righteous before God. I have right status before the Lord. Why? Because there's some things I do and there's some things I don't do. It's all about me and my actions and my behaviors. This is external religion, friends. 
And friends, I'm going to suggest to you this. We can just as easily fall into this trap. We can fall into the exact same trap as this Pharisee. First of all, he talks about some things he doesn't do. He says, here are the don't do's for me. I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. These are just general terms, general groups of people, general sort of areas of sin from this culture. He's not pointing out specific folks in the crowd here. He's just talking about society. The things that are, ha- the things that are happening in society that he disapproves of, that God disapproves of, and that he is separate from, that he's over and above. The word for robbers just means people who cheat other people. It's not necessarily like someone who like holds you up at gunpoint. Just people who are cheats and lies. There's that happening all over society. He's like, man, our society is really going down the drain. Evildoers were just people who practiced injustice. The word there is the word for injustice. Those who didn't have the heart of God to produce justice in this world. The, part, the people who didn't like look out for the poor and oppressed. And then there's the word for adulterers. That's actually just the word for sexual immorality. And he's saying, man, the the sexual ethic of our people, the sexual ethic I see around me, it is awful. God, thank you that I have not fallen in to that debauchery like everyone else. This would be sort of like you and me standing and saying something like, can you even believe the world we live in anymore? I mean, the stuff happening in our society today, the way people spend money and live above their means, the way people lie and cheat, the way they discriminate against and treat one another, the violence people are watching these days on TV shows and movies. I mean, the way people dress. Have you seen the way the kids are dressing these days? The things they post online. I mean, the sexual ethic of our world. I'm just glad that things weren't like this when I was dating. I mean, God, thank you that I'm not like those people. The people of our world who live in these ways and lie and cheat and steal and sleep around and have lowered themselves to this depraved state of our world. Thank you, God, that I'm above all that and I'm removed from it and that I don't do these things. Now, I know none of you have ever, ever, never ever thought things like this before. You certainly never said them to your spouse, right? You certainly never judged the, the world for the sins of the world. You never, certainly never kind of set yourself up against the deepest, darkest sins of our society and said, God, thank you that I'm not like all those people. Friends, do you see what this guy's doing? He's quite conveniently picking out the worst sins of society and then comparing himself to those things. He says, you know, hey, The worst stuff out there, I'm not a part of it. That must make me better. That must make me right. That must mean that I am righteous before God. And then he gets a little more specific. Or even like this tax collector. There's a lot of sin out there in the world, Lord, that I'm not a part of. Thank you. And I'm not like this guy, this tax collector. You know how easy it is to pick people out at their lowest point and compare ourselves to them in order to feel superior? In order to feel righteous why why do we do it why does this guy do it why do you do it why do i do it i'll tell you why it feels great it feels good it feels really really good to be superior it feels really good to be more righteous it feels wonderful to be morally just a bit above someone else if even just for a second And it can happen, friends, in such subtle and superficial ways. It just sneaks in on you, even when it seems so blatant and so obvious. I remember this time a while back, my wife Amy and I were hiking with our dog, Annie. Annie is our 
are like, she's a mutt, but she kind of looks like a yellow lab. She's a beautiful dog. Half of you can see her picture there on the screen. Sorry about the other screen today. Um, but we got Annie, and she is the kindest, most gentle dog you've ever met. We got her right about the same time my daughter PJ was born. And you remember the dog from Peter Pan that like nannies the kids? Annie is that dog. I think she changed PJ's diapers a few times. She's that loving and caring. She would lay next to PJ when PJ was on the ground. And like, to, if there's anyone in the house, she would lay between PJ and anyone else in the house. Just to kind of, it's like, even as I would approach PJ, she'd look at me like, what do you think you're doing? You know, like she just loves people. She's kind and gentle and gracious. And if you came over to our house, you would just fall in love with her instantly. But everything changes when she gets around other dogs. Loving, cozy, cute Annie turns into Cujo. Like, she will kill you. I mean, all of a sudden you can put her around any other dog and she just goes psycho. Well, one day Amy and I are off hiking and um, we'd been hiking for about an hour and a half and we hadn't seen anyone on the trail. Like, no one out. And we had Annie along with us and she was on the leash and we rarely did that. But then all of a sudden, I think it was my wife's idea actually, she said, let's take Annie off the, let's take Annie off the leash. And I was like, honey, this is a real bad idea. You can tell I'm exaggerating a bit here. Um, but we took Annie off the leash and we hiked probably for another half an hour or so and kind of had forgotten about the fact that she was off leash, just kind of hanging with us. She was real good at that. And then all of a sudden we come around this corner to see this woman and her dog. Like out of nowhere. I didn't see him coming. And just as we turn the corner and see them, Annie sees them as well. And she perks up, goes to like high alert. And then full speed and like ultimate Cujo form, sprints at this woman and her like little schnauzer dog. I'm thinking that dog is dead, you know? And she's sprinting and my wife's starting to panic. Annie, 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 Annie. She's calling for Annie. And the woman who sees now Annie charging at her teeth like born and like barking is starting to panic and she hears us calling her Annie. So the woman starts to do one of these. She's like grabbing her little dog and she's like, Annie, Annie, Annie. And then she says, are you going to be nice, Annie? (laughs) It's like the funniest, most awful moment of my life. Like to watch this woman just in sheer terror. Um, So then of course, luckily my my dog did not bite her dog and did not kill her dog. She, She comes just kind of established her dominance and then backed off but we have to run up and apologize oh i'm so sorry it was like super embarrassing and luckily she was going the opposite way of us on the trail so we kind of got to get out of there real quick like wow um like what kind of person are you and i was like i'm a pastor i'm really sorry and she's like oh yeah really and i said yeah i pastor village baptist down the road it's like um (laughs) so anyway so this incident occurs not three weeks later i'm out for a run and I take, decide to take Annie with me. She's on the leash and we're running along and we are about a mile into the run and we get to this park. And as we kind of approach the park, there's a family out in the middle of the park kind of picnicking and they have their dog with and their dog is off leash against the rules for the park. So as we're running, this dog pulls an Annie and she sprints at us like full on sprint. And I think it was a pit bull, but it's just like coming at us, teeth like, ah, like going to kill us. And I'm thinking like, this is it. This is going to be a major throwdown. And like, unlike the lady, I'm not trying to protect my dog. I'm like, you're on your own, Annie. <laughs> well, they have this little altercation. The family runs over. They're like, oh, we're so sorry. Like, I can't believe she never does this. And they kind of, and I didn't say much. I just said, oh, no problem. But as I run away, I'm running away. In my mind, I'm thinking, who are these people? 
the nerve of these people to not have their dog on a leash in the park. Like, unbelievable. Honestly, this is honestly my thinking. For about 45 seconds, which doesn't sound like a long time, but when judgment and superiority and hate and venom are just spinning through your brain, that's a long time. And about 45 seconds in, the Holy Spirit just whispers to me, just kind of tap, tap, tap. I don't know if the Holy Spirit's ever a little bit sarcastic with you, but sometimes, like, I guess God knows I need a little extra. So the Spirit was like, really, Dave? Are you serious right now? You're going to be judgmental and superior about this? Do you remember what happened? Yeah, oh, yeah, Lord, I'm so sorry, right? Friends, that's how difficult, how easy it is for us to slip into a mode of self-righteousness. So let me ask you this. Where is there some Pharisee in you? Not is there some Pharisee in you, which was my original question, but this morning I changed it. Where is there some Pharisee in you? Do you ever find yourself passing judgment on someone? Maybe judgment for something that you even yourself do or have done. Do you ever get a little twinge of joy about being critical? Does that just ignite something in you that feels good? Do you ever find out somebody else, maybe someone real close to you, maybe a friend or even a family member has messed up and their failure actually brings you joy, if even just for a moment, feeling because you feel just a little bit better about you? Where is there some Pharisee in you? You look real honestly at that this morning because Jesus wants you to spot it. Let me, let me ask you it this way. Where are your I don'ts? You know, this Pharisee says, here's some things I don't do. Thank you, Lord, that I don't do these things, that I'm not engaged in these behaviors. Where are the things where you, what are the things that you don't do that you are tempted to compare with other people who do do them in order to make yourself feel more righteous? Maybe it's what you don't watch. Or maybe it's what you don't wear. Or maybe it's what you don't say. Or what you don't drink. Or what you don't support or don't vote for. Or maybe, like for many of us, this is true for me, your don'ts don't really show up. Not as blatantly anyway. Until you're parenting. And all of a sudden in your parenting, that's where your don'ts really show up. I can't believe these parents who let their kids blank. I would never. Right? I'll tell you something. My sixth grade daughter has reminded me most of the year that she is the only sixth grader. The only sixth grader, dad, in the entire Cedar Park Middle School who doesn't have a cell phone. And I have to tell you, friends, every time she says that to me, I just well up with pride and superiority. Well, then you're the only sixth grader whose parents really love you then, honey. You must have an awesome dad. And who are these parents who are giving cell phones to their kids at such an early age? I mean, there's this, this, this stream of self-righteousness that can well up in me over something as silly as a cell phone, and it can happen just like that. It's ugly. It's funny, but it's ugly. I had some parents in the first service came up to me and said, our kids are in high school and they don't have cell phones, so we must be better than you, Pastor Dave. I was like, you totally are. You totally are. And friends, let me be really clear here. Students, hear me on this. It is actually a very good thing to have some I don'ts. I don'ts are a good thing. If 
The love of Christ is alive in your heart. If the holiness and joy of Jesus is like welling up in your soul, then there are some things that you're not going to want to do, that you're going to say no to in this world, that you're going to sort of peel off and away from your life. I don'ts aren't bad. However, when they become the thing you are ever so subtly and sometimes even unconsciously leveraging for your righteousness, they become deadly to your soul. They're like poison all of a sudden. This thing that was so good is now like poison in your heart. Because friends, who is this Pharisee not focused on anymore? God. He stands up to pray, which last time I checked was, according to Pastor Carl last week, was a chance to be consciously in contact with God. And yet he's praying. I don't think there's any contact with God happening here at all. He's focused on himself, his behavior, the behavior of others. He's not focused on God. Have you ever heard somebody do this? Have you ever experienced this kind of a prayer, someone who's technically praying out loud, but you can tell that they're not really talking to God. They're actually just trying to send a message to everyone else who is listening. Have you heard this kind of prayer before? (laughs) Oh God, please help my husband, who I hope is listening right now, even as you and I speak, to have victory over his selfish and inconsiderate ways and to buy a real nice gift for me for my upcoming birthday, which, as you know, O Lord, is already picked out and sitting in my Amazon wishlist account. Help him, Jesus. Now, that's kind of like an obnoxiously like overt example. Most of us are a lot more subtle than that. But you know, who's, you know who the masters of praying these kind of prayers are? Who are, who are the best people at praying prayers, not to God, but to others? Pastors. I call it the prayer men. You know, it's the prayer at the end of the sermon. That's not really a prayer to God. It's just a recap of all the points of the message to make sure that everyone heard. Pastors are real good at prayer men's. And so I make it a point, friends, to never try and pray that way. Why? Because I'm better than those other pastors. Bill Moyers uh, was, was President Lyndon Johnson's press secretary during the 1960s. And uh, this is a great little story. Uh, one day, he, to start a cabinet meeting, Bill was praying. He was praying kind of quietly. And President Johnson said to him, Speak up, Bill. I can't hear you. And Bill said, Excuse me, Mr. President. That's okay. Because I wasn't actually talking to you. So that was pretty bold. I don't know if he had his job after that, but that was a solid response. I thank God that I'm not like people who that I don't struggle with, that I'm not the kind of person that. It's so easy for that to become a part of what we base our righteousness on. See, the Pharisee has a long list of I don'ts to prove his righteousness, but he also has a list of I do's. It's not just the things he doesn't do that make him righteous, it's the things that he does do. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, he says. Now, the short version on this is both of these things were not required in the Old Testament of him to do. How many times in the Old Testament were people required to fast every year? Once. Once a year. This guy's doing it twice a week, which for all you math majors out there is 104 times. He's going for some serious extra credit in the fasting realm, isn't he? He's one hungry guy. Lord, twice a week even, he says. Then he says, and I tithe a tenth, to give a tenth of all I get. And that little phrase, all I get, is the key. Because in the Old Testament, you were supposed to tithe, but you did not actually have to tithe on everything. There were some things that you didn't have to tithe on. They were sort of pre-taxed. They were pre-tithed. And so when you received them, they were already tithed on. And there's a whole lot of sort of like 
rules and loopholes there. But like, what, here's an example. One of the things you didn't have to tithe on was celery. I don't know. Why not? Why not? Don't you have to tithe on celery? Probably because God doesn't even like celery, to be honest. Like, <laughs> tastes like nothing. So God's like, just keep all of it. But the point is this. The point is this Pharisee, he says, I don't only tithe on the stuff I have to tithe on. I even give extra. I even tithe on the stuff I don't have to tithe on. I'm doing some serious extra credit work here, Lord. You can see how sold out I am to you. You can see how committed I am to you. I must be righteous, not just because of the things I don't do, but because of the things that I do do. What about you? Got any I do areas in your life? Got any things that you do that you feel pretty proud about? Places where you go the extra mile, where you put in extra time serving God. And the truth is this. The truth is, if you're honest, you are very tempted to leverage those things for your own righteousness. To say, I'm right before God. I'm a good person. I have status before the king. Why? Because of these things that I do. God, I'm pretty sure you're pleased with me because, you know, I went and gave up vacation for a week again this year to serve the abused and neglected kids of Royal Family Kids Camp. You know, God, I'm pretty sure that I have status with you because I volunteer at the Jesus table every single week. You know, I devote myself, Lord, to serving the poor and needy of our world. I have taught Sunday school for 25 years in this church. Some people don't do anything. You know, someone someone in our Colossians class said a few weeks ago, um, I have, not about themselves, but just kind of talking about what Christians sometimes say, I haven't missed my devotions in four years. Let me tell you why I'm righteous. Let me tell you why I'm right before God. Let me tell you why he accepts me. Because I haven't missed my devotional time in four years. Now, again, let me be clear. Is Royal Family Kids Camp teaching Sunday school, doing devotions, are those good things? They are. They are very, very good things. But if they are what you are leveraging for your own righteousness, they're a prison cell. You've entered into empty, works-based, external religion. You've moved away from the gospel. You've moved away from the life of freedom and joy and hope that God so longs to give you. And friends, that is not what Jesus says, how righteousness and right status in the kingdom of God works. It's not how God wants you to live your life on the treadmill of accomplishment so that God will accept you day after day after day. Instead, he offers another way. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Just a couple things here. It says he wouldn't even look up to heaven, right? There's this idea that, like, if you do something wrong, you maybe experience this with your kids, they do something wrong, and then you say, like, what happened? And they have to tell you about it? What do they want to do? They want to look at the floor, right? They don't even want to look you in the eye. But someone who will, like, just look, look you right in the eye and lie to your face or tell you exactly what they did wrong without even flinching, they're just like a real brazen, sort of callous person. This guy is not that way. He does not even want to look God in the eye. He can't even bring himself to stare God in the face. Because why? He's not focused on the external sins of others. Instead, he sees real clearly the internal sin in himself and just how deep it runs. 
he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast. This act of beating his breast. This is quite an expressive moment because the breast was the part of the body that housed the heart. And the heart was the location of the truest and deepest part of you. And he beats on this thing that's at the very core of who he is. This is why we talk about inviting Jesus into your heart. It's a way of saying, Jesus wants to be Lord of your life, and he wants to come in on the very foundational, central, core level of your life. He doesn't want to just be on the perimeter. He wants to be all the way in there. I have a friend whose, whose daughter, when she was about five years old, said to her parents one time, I know Jesus lives in my heart, Dad, because when I put my hand on it, I can feel him walking around in there. Isn't that awesome? It's like a five-year-old who doesn't quite understand the theology, but there's something so rich and true. And you just want to say, yes, honey, he is, and he wants to continue to rule and reign in the deepest parts of you. And so for this tax collector to beat his breast, it was just an expression of extreme anguish. By the way, this expression only happens twice in the entire Bible. There's only two times in the entire Bible where people beat their breasts. In this moment and in one other. Do you know what it is? It's when Jesus is hanging on the cross at Calvary. And in Luke 23, we're told that the people beat their breasts. They felt extreme anguish. This tax collector is offering a cry of desperate agony here. This is not external righteousness. This is sincere internal reflection. This is a guy saying, my heart is wrong. There is something wrong in me. I am messed up, Lord, on the deepest level. And no external behavior, no amount of I do's or I don'ts is ever going to fix all the stuff that's broken in me. Friends, that's why superiority is so lethal. It, It... It's deadly because it blinds me to the truth about myself. It focuses me on the external behaviors of others and gets me to compare my behavior with their behavior. And God says, that's not what I want you looking at at all. Let's deal with the stuff that's messed up deep down inside of you. This tax collector understands that. And he says, I don't know the truth about anyone else's heart, Lord. The reality is this. Only, I can only see a tiny, teeny little bit of other people. But I know who I am. I have access to my own mind and my own secret thoughts and to my own desires and there is no amount of behavior modification that can fix that. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is maybe the best part of the entire passage. The word that Luke uses here for sinner, it's not the normal, I mean for mercy, I'm sorry. For mercy is not the normal word for mercy. There's a very common word for mercy that's used all throughout the Gospel of Luke and all throughout the New Testament. This is not that word. The word he uses here for, for mercy is actually the word for atonement. What the tax collector says here literally is, God, when I look at my heart, I am such a sinner that I need you to atone for me. I need you to take away my sin. I don't just need you to change my actions or modify my behavior or give me a better list of do's and don'ts. I need to be changed and renewed and cleansed. I need to be right on the inside. Friends, this is why Jesus says the tax collector went home justified and righteous because guess what? He decided to leverage the only thing that can give us the status of being right before God and that's the death and resurrection of his son. The only thing that can provide righteousness for you and me because of the depth of our sin, because of how deep it runs in you and me, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The atoning sacrifice 
He paid for you and me on the cross. So what are you leveraging this morning? Your own works of righteousness? Your own, your own, your own I don't do these things list? Your own I do do these things list? Or are you leaning on, relying on, putting your weight on the atoning sacrifice of Christ for your right standing before God? Because guess what, friends? Jesus says it's the only way. That is the only way into the kingdom. What's amazing is that right after this story, there's this short little story in verses 15 through 17 about these kids that want to come to Jesus. These, these children, and some scholars think it's actually like mothers bringing their babies to Jesus to have him bless them. And what do the disciples do? The disciples pretty much say like, hey, yo, Jesus is really important. He's got super high status. He doesn't have time to do this like kid thing. Get these kids out of here. It says that the, the, the disciples rebuked them. It's like they, he, they shamed them. How dare you even think of bringing those kids to Jesus? They have nothing to offer him. And then Jesus responds to this moment in this way. He says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Friends, this verse right here is one of the tragedies of like modern evangelicalism because we have like butchered this verse in the way we use it. Most of the time when we talk about childlike faith and we refer to these verses here, what do we mean? We mean, man, that person really has childlike faith. That means they just accept anything we say. They'll just receive it. They don't really think it through. They're not critical about it. They just kind of take it at face value. Man, isn't it great? Faith like a child. They'll believe anything. They'll believe in Jesus and Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. All of it, right? Is that what Jesus is lifting up here? I mean, maybe it's a really good thing to have childlike faith. Unfortunately, I just don't think it's what Jesus is talking about here. What does he mean when he says, truly I tell you, by the way, that's his words for, listen up, this is really important. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What he's saying is, unless you're willing to enter the kingdom, receive status and righteousness before God as someone who has nothing to offer in return, then you can't enter it. In other words, you can never earn or buy or achieve your way into the kingdom at all. These kids can get into the kingdom because they have nothing to offer. And unless you're willing to come into the kingdom just like them, then you can't come in. Ironically, next in the next passage, in a passage that we'll look at in two weeks, Jesus encounters another person, a ruler. So Jesus tells this story about the Pharisee and the tax collector, the person who tries to earn their way in and says, like, I have a lot to offer, God. I can achieve my way in. And the person who has nothing and who can't get in at all except for on the grace of God. And then he tells a story about children and a ruler, people who have nothing to get in and people who and someone who has everything to get in. And in the end of that story, the children are what? Invited to come to Jesus. And the, then the ruler, he walks away sad. Why? Because, friends, nothing you can do can create your own righteousness. There is no amount of do's or don'ts or dids or good thinking or right behavior that will earn you status before God. The only thing that gets you righteousness, right standing, status before the King, is the death and resurrection of Jesus and your willingness to receive that wholeheartedly. God, I have nothing to offer you, but I'll just receive 
what you've come to offer me and your son. And then from that place of radical love and acceptance, I am going to be fueled by grace, live for you. Not to earn your love because I already have it. Just because I want to give away what I've received from you. Friends, that's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. We come every week to say, we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's all because of the grace of God. It's all because of the death of Jesus, his body broken and his blood shed on the cross. And so this morning as we come to the table together, let me ask you to do this. Let me ask you just to consider this question. Have you got any don'ts? Got any I don'ts that you've been leaning on, relying on, leveraging for your own righteousness? I'm a real good Christian because I don't. Maybe you just need to leave that at the communion table today and instead receive the free grace of God. Got any I do's today? Here's some things that I do. Here's some things that make me a really good Christian. Here's some things that make me more righteous before God than other people. Friends, maybe you just need the, the opportunity to leave those I do's at the table this morning and instead walk away with the free, empowering unchanging love of God offered to you in Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll do that today. I hope that you'll lay down any sense that you can earn your own righteousness because that's what God asks us to do. Father, this morning we thank you for the way that your spirit is helping us to think through these things. I pray, God, that you would uh, help us to not be a church that is drawn to achieve our own righteousness. It lays out a new moral code that we can follow better than everyone else. God, help me to do not do that. Lord, you know how I'm drawn to that. You know how we're all drawn to that. But God, remind us again of how much you love us. May we receive that wholeheartedly. May we receive that just the way the children in this story do. That's our prayer, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. And it's all for you. In Christ's name, amen. Come forward when you're ready. The tables are open.